Welcome to The Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Today, JCK's Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski will interview Bruce Cleaver, CEO of the De Beers Group. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, and welcome to The Jewelry District. I'm here in my home office in Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCK Online. We've got a very special guest today joining us all the way from the United Kingdom. His name is Bruce Cleaver. You know him as the CEO of the De Beers Group. Welcome, Bruce. We're so thrilled to have you. This is a real special experience for us. We've been doing these home podcasts for several weeks now, but we certainly haven't had one intercontinental podcast. So this (laughs) this is definitely a new one for us. Well, it's a bit of a new one for me too. So uh, thanks very much for having me, Victoria and Rob. Um, I'm in my home office as well, where I've been for the last 50 days and uh, living in a new world, I guess. Yeah. And you're in London right now, right? Yes, I'm just outside London. So uh, I'm locked down in London. Yeah. And what's the mood over there? Um, I think the mood is starting to improve. There's, the data's getting better. As you know, London's been very badly affected, as has the US, but the data's improving, and there's quite a lot of hope that the first phase of the release of the lockdown will be starting soon. So I think people uh, people have been very disciplined in the lockdown, actually, but I think people are looking forward to getting out of it. And is there any guidance that you've received on when the offices can open, when the headquarters can reopen? So the government's updating the country on Sunday, but we have been talking to them as of other businesses about the procedures we need to follow in the office for when we reopen it. So we don't have a date yet as to when we'll reopen, but we have some very clear health procedures and protocols in place as to how we will reopen the office. So we've done some really good work in the head office, but also across the world, as I'm sure we'll get to on the protocols for being safe and reopening offices. So hopefully people, at least some people will get back to office uh, sooner rather than later. Mm, Yeah, lots of Purell, I imagine, and masks. Well, let's back up for just one minute. You've been with De Beers since 2005, and you've been a board director since 2008. But what happened before then? What brought you into the world of diamond mining? Uh, it's It's a long story and an element of luck involved, I guess, as in most people's careers, an element of being in the right place at the right time. And of course, I've been fortunate for the last 15 years or so to be involved in this fascinating industry. I am a South African. I grew up in South Africa. I did a maths degree and then a law degree at Cape Town University. I did another degree at Cambridge, and I was a lawyer for a long time. I um, worked in corporate finance as well in an investment bank. But when I was a lawyer at a large firm in Johannesburg, I was fortunate to have amongst my clients, Anglo-American, who's the main shareholder in De Beers, De Beers and the Oppenheimer family. So I had kind of got to know the diamond business, or I thought I had got to know the diamond business from an advisory point of view. And in 2005, I was fortunate enough to be offered the job as general counsel of De Beers by Nikki and Gareth at the time. And I was lucky enough to join. And as you all know, the diamond business gets into your blood. So I've been with De Beers ever since. I've done a number of roles ever since and uh, been very fortunate to have shareholders and board members who supported me and uh, promoted me into different roles. So uh, 15 years in the job. I'm only learning the job now. As you know, most people are in this business. So I'm a bit of a newcomer by De Beers standards. But yeah, it's been a fascinating ride. And you've been CEO since? Middle of 2016. So uh, So you've been CEO for four years. Yeah, that's right. So right now, obviously, the world's in turmoil, the diamond world's in turmoil. You are giving 100% deferrals as far as your sites. Are any diamonds being sold right now? Or is there still demand? 
Well, there's of course demand in China and some of the pleasing signs and I think things to look forward to in the future are the, the bounce back in China. You know, you'll remember in February in China, we were in a position which is pretty much where we are now in the rest of the world, which, which is everything locked down. At that point, of course, India was still open. But China has bounced back well and the um, pretty much all the malls are open, pretty much all the stores are open and footfall is good and sales are improving. So I think there is demand there. In the rest of the world, demand is slight, as you would expect. So small pockets of demand only. Actually, as it happens, as some of the states in the US have reopened or are reopening, one or two stores are starting to reopen, but it's a bit too early to talk about a recovery. So India remains locked down, and that's both uh, Mumbai and Surat until the 17th of May. So obviously, that's a significant issue for the trade. 90% of all rough by value, as you know, gets cut and polished in India. And so at the moment, uh, I think we're more in a holding pattern. But the, the good news is I think the Chinese recovery has been quick and each week seems to get slightly better than the prior week in China. So what kind of things are people looking for? Well, at the moment, actually, the, the typical Chinese goods are selling. And I think we're seeing some positive signs is there's an element of pent up demand, which has been held up while the lockdown was on, which has now come back into the market. So I think that's been positive. What's also interesting is that there's transactions going on in stores as well as online. So the fear that people wouldn't necessarily come back to stores, probably not true. And quite a lot of footfall actually in the malls. So pretty much all Chinese goods are selling at the moment. Online, I think, will benefit from this whole crisis anyway, but I think much of the diamond industry has started to position itself for some online sales. But as I say, I think probably slightly ahead of where we thought it would be the return. I don't think we're yet at the same level of sales in China as we were one year ago, but I think each month that passes since the lockdown has ended sees more footfall and more sales. But on a wholesale level, obviously there's demand on a retail level somewhat in China, but on a wholesale level, are you, you know, you're giving people the option of buying. Is anyone doing it right now? Yes. Yeah, so we've been very clear as we've been in the past in really difficult times that we will offer customers essentially 100% flexibility. So site three, as you know, we did not hold certainly the first time since the war that we haven't had a site. And that's because Botswana, Namibia and South Africa were completely locked down and you couldn't get goods in or out. Site 4 is, in theory, currently underway. And where there are areas of demand, we are open for business and there are little pockets of business. And in fact, we've been able to reopen the building in Botswana and we would expect a couple of customers to come in this week. So I don't expect a, a significant site, but to the extent there is demand, we certainly are open for business and will be able to sell into that demand. We're also looking, as you would expect, in more innovative ways of selling, not just now, but for the balance of the crisis and who knows, maybe even beyond that. So we're looking at taking goods to customers in different jurisdictions. We're looking at virtual sites. We're looking at selling bespoke boxes to clients without them necessarily having physically viewed them. And so I think out of this period, you're going to see the beers continue to innovate the way you've seen us do before. I was just, there was an article recently that called for two things. First of all, a moratorium on rough coming into India. And the second was for producers to start extending credit. And I was wondering what you thought of both those things. So both questions that we do get, Rob, and obviously important questions. On the first one, which is the call by the GJEPC to have their members impose a voluntary ban on rough imports into India for a month, our position on this is very clear. We understand, of course, that the midstream in India is going through a difficult time. 
And we're sympathetic to that, and we're doing our best to help. 100% flexibility is one area we've helped. Our production guidance is considerably down now from where we guided at the beginning of the year, so we certainly will produce less diamonds in the year in order to help ease the pressure. But we feel strongly that the diamond industry is a very interconnected, very global business, and each part of the industry needs to function for the industry to work. So we don't feel it's a good idea to impose artificial barriers and artificial geographic constraints on the diamond industry. For us, where there is demand, it's very important that we can continue to service it. And we shouldn't forget, of course, that the diamond industry supports countless people in India, of course, but not just in India and in our producer countries. A lot of people are very dependent on us for their livelihood, for their health, for their families. And so at a time like this, particularly when people are struggling, um, our position is we should keep global supply chains open as much as we can. Where there is demand, we should try and service that demand. So although we understand the sentiment of the GJEPC, it's not a position that we are supportive of. And the question of credit, should producers offer credit, which is something I know that you've never done in your history, but I guess the argument is that if producers start offering credit to diamond manufacturers, you will have more credit worthy people in the industry than perhaps you have right now. Yeah, and that's a question that does come up from time to time. Um, I only speak for De Beers, obviously, in my answer, but you know, we, we have never sold on credit and we're not really a credit business. We don't have a capability really of analyzing credit risk the way other people do. So our position is and will remain that we will continue to sell for cash. Now, clearly, we'll continue to work with the best customers and try and help them the most. But I think the actions we've taken, particularly in 100% flexibility and reducing production, are strong indications that we do work with them. But I don't think it's likely that we would change our selling model. So what should we expect as far as production this year? So at the beginning of the year, and you'll recall, of course, that the Christmas season in the U.S. was a good season. At that point, we'd guided for 2020 production between 32 and 34 million carats. And in our most recent production guidance, we've reduced that by about 7 million carats, about 25% of our total production. So the current guidance is 25 to 27 million carats. Now, you'll appreciate in a mining business, which is a big, complex business, it's not a simple issue to slow down production. It requires a great deal of thought and a great deal of effort in order to find the optimal way to do it in order to achieve a couple of things. One, of course, to do it as safely as you can. That's the most important thing. Secondly, to do it in a way where we can conserve cash, because I think everyone's in a cash conservation mode now. But thirdly, in a way where you don't prejudice the long-term future of the diamond industry or the, the mines in our case. So, you know, it took us a little while to get to that number, the new number of 25 to 27 million carats. But you'll appreciate it's because we had to work through in some detail what the mining plans were to allow us to do that. But I think that does illustrate, uh, you know, we have looked this seriously. We do understand some of the challenges out there. We all suffer from them at the moment. So we've done our best to reduce the guidance and how much we will produce. We will obviously watch demand. And to the extent we have to reduce guidance again, or maybe there's better demand than we'd anticipated, we can respond to that. But our current guidance, as I say, is about 7 million carats down, about 25% down on the prior year's guidance. Most of the mines are still operating, correct? They're all in slightly different phases. And again, it's the complexity of shutting a mine and then starting it up. So some of the mines shut and they shut really because of government shutdowns. But then we were able to talk to our government regulators and partners about the need to keep economic value chains open and the fact that we can do it at De Beers in a safe way, when a safer way is possible. So most of our mining operations have now restarted or are just about to restart, but all in accordance with different mining plans to the ones they had before. So 
as I say, pretty much everything is operating, but not at the same level as it was before. There's been a lot of talk here in the U.S. about how Africa might be impacted by COVID. What are you hearing, especially from Botswana, which I know is a country that you're close to and has had, obviously, you know, it had a nasty AIDS problem a long time ago. Has the disease come there and how has it been impacted? Yeah, so Botswana, South Africa and Namibia have imposed quite draconian lockdowns from, I think, quite early in the virus's phase. And I think so far the evidence is they've done this really very well. Botswana, which acted very quickly, it had only had one or two cases when it imposed the lockdown, has in fact only had 22 recorded cases. Amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. Now, they've taken some pretty draconian steps, but I think they would say with some justification that they've been able to keep the virus at bay. And actually, they're now talking about a very gentle releasing in the next phase. So that has been affected by banning non-Botswanan citizens or permanent residents coming back into the country, imposing quarantine on people who do, etc. But I think the population has responded really well to the government and has really respected the lockdown. Uh, similar statistics actually in Namibia. South Africa's got more cases, but a much bigger country with a much bigger population. And also, I think, has won international plaudits for the way it's done the lockdown and the way the people of the country have supported it. We've made very significant contributions to COVID relief in each of those countries and in Canada. And we've worked really well with government in order to try and do two things. And one is, as much as possible, keep our minds and our communities going but also help governments to step up their own healthcare plan. So actually just today, we delivered into Namibia a state-of-the-art PCR testing machine and a, a good number of thousand testing kits. And these are for use by the government, not on the mines. And we'll put some on the mines too. So we've trained up the folks uh, in government to use these testing machines. These are the most sophisticated testing machines so that government can test its people. We've done the same in Botswana. You know, these are difficult things to come by, though we've done very well with our supply chain colleagues to procure this kind of equipment and deliver it in those countries. We've delivered probably a million masks into those countries for our mining communities. We've got all kinds of testing, screening, thermometers, handheld thermometers, different kind of thermometers. We've got lots of food donations, etc. So we've probably by now donated five and a half million dollars across those three countries. A lot of those donations are in kind because if we can get medical equipment and medical supplies to hospitals, that need them. That's the most effective way we think of delivering uh, relief for the community. Some donations in cash as well to government, but really we've been focused on trying to help the governments and our communities on the health front. And so far we've done a grand job. And another area where we've made a significant donation is one that's close to De Beers and to my heart, which is this terrible scourge of gender-based violence, which as you know, has definitely accelerated in all countries under lockdown. So in addition to all the other donations I spoke about, we donated $200,000 through our partner, UN Women, who we work a lot with. I am a UN Women He for She thematic champion. So we've done a lot of work with them on diversity in De Beers. And we're trying to really get these funds to support groups as directly as we can, who can help provide support, particularly for women who are abused or victims of domestic violence in the lockdown. And you'll appreciate, of course, the law enforcement is very stretched and probably doesn't have the time it might have to devote to this kind of thing. So that's a really important issue for us as well. So please be doing some great stuff there too. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews is what helps make them possible. Help spread the word. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. And now back to the show. You talk a little bit about 
you know, there's always been this talk of a, a supply demand imbalance. And over recently, I think there was a consensus there was perhaps too many diamonds on the market. At this point, Dominion's having issues. Some of the smaller miners are having issues. Do you think that we're going to see over the next couple of years supply starting to fall? Um, certainly our model, which was prepared in a more steady state environment, had indicated that probably last year RAF production had peaked. And if you go back in time and you look at the increase of RAF production over the last 20 years, there's certainly an argument that that increased production might explain why RAF and polished price have been so stubbornly flat over that period of time. Now, we would think that the COVID crisis might accelerate the decline in production. You mentioned Dominion. There are a number of mines that are in care and maintenance, and that's as much for market reasons as well as COVID reasons. So I guess you know, without going into who they might be, it's likely that there will be less production at the end of this crisis than there was before. And I think just in terms of the pure supply demand balance, that's probably good for the equation. You know, as long as consumers continue to desire the product and as long as we and others, but there's a big onus on us, can continue to drive demand, that should be good for all of us. So let's talk about driving demand. I know you invested a lot in marketing last year. Can you talk a little bit about how that worked and whether you plan to continue that this year now that there's another crisis again? Yeah, so last year we spent around $170 million marketing, which is certainly the biggest number in 10 years, and I think might be the biggest number since I've been at the Beers. And that was in a difficult year for us in terms of profits. So I think that illustrates that we are very committed to helping drive demand and helping with marketing. And we do see that in a difficult market, cutting marketing is not a great idea. 2020 will be an outlying year because in the first half in America, we've done very little marketing for obvious reasons, and we'll certainly be looking to up that in the second half of the year. It's hard to say at this point how much we'll spend, Rob, but I would not expect us to be spending the same in 2020 as we did in 2019. But what we will do is target it in the most appropriate areas based on what we see as we come out of the recovery. So our long-term strategy around marketing hasn't changed. You know, the diamond industry has been through a bunch of crisis. Does the playbooks for after 9-11 and after the financial crisis, is there anything that you're kind of taking from that that you think might be applicable to this situation? I think a bit of a bit of yes and a bit of no, in the sense I think that this crisis is both economic and, and a health crisis, whereas those other two were, at least for the world, not the people who were unfortunately the victims of 9-11, they were more economic. And so I think there's a bit of both. I think the evidence that we have and the data we have suggests actually very strongly that in the US in particular, over the last 50 years, the diamond industry has done well after a recession. And so as soon as people feel a bit more confident about their future, they do buy and purchases that they've put off do happen. So I think I think. There's an element of that, but I think there's also an element of this relationship point that I made earlier will probably be more important coming out of this recession than the last. You know, also in places like India and China, which we shouldn't forget are big markets, there will be other opportunities. You know, in China, there's talk of almost two wedding seasons in one, and similarly with Diwali in, in India, so which is late this year. And so I think there'll be opportunities in other places outside of the US for pent-up demand to, to come back and actually be quite strong. So Yes, we are looking at some of the experiences we had in 9-11 and the financial crisis and what we did there. And we did find that even coming out of tough financial times, people did continue to buy. And how do you see Lightbox? Is there you know, any thoughts on where demand for lab-grown diamonds will be at the end of this crisis or through it? Yeah, so just talking more generally before I get on to Lightbox, um, I do think that natural diamonds will do well coming out of the crisis. For, and obviously, that is where De Beers is very much focused. 
uh, Lightbox, as you know, is a small part of the beers' portfolio, and it's really about trying to give consumers what we think they want, which is fashion-related items. Now, to the extent that there's demand for that, Lightbox is well-positioned. We've continued to produce, actually, um, through the crisis, so we've been able to keep that facility open. We are continuing to do well in our facility we're building in Gresham in Oregon. That's been largely unaffected by the virus, not entirely because social distancing has been put in place there, but that facility is on stream to be up and running towards the end of the year. Interestingly, the Lightbox website, which we track a lot, does still indicate that the educational content on that website is quite heavily looked at and people do spend quite a lot of time on it. So for us, Lightbox is as much a commercial venture as educating consumers as to what um, we think the product should be. And they do spend time and we get a few repeat purchases on those websites. So the Lightbox strategy hasn't changed and we'll continue to, to complete the facility and make the offering as a fashion offering. I have a question about retailers in the U.S. and what you think they need to be doing now to position themselves for the recovery. Have you heard of any partners in the U.S. that are actually connecting with customers and still selling? I mean, what do you think are the essentials for retailers so they're positioned? It's a great question. I think there's probably no one-size-fits-all answer. There's certainly some evidence that some businesses are selling online in the U.S. and others aren't. So I think, firstly, if your online offering has been good enough, you probably could have made some sales, not at the same level, but you could have made some sales. But also, if you, in doing that, you'll, of course, keep your omni-channel platform alive and you'll keep your product and your brands in consumers' minds. And I think those people who've done that well and are able to connect with and talk to their consumers will be able to get them back in stores quicker. Obviously, the issue in a store is how are you going to make your customer feel absolutely comfortable that they can come into the store and be safe? So I think many of our Forevermark jewelers are thinking hard about how they can make their stores both safe from a health point of view, but not intimidating. So too many masks and too many gloves could come across as quite intimidating. So I think those people who get that right, I think it's probably going to be easier for stores that operate by appointment, because I think then you can stagger the people coming in the stores easier. But I think it's really going to be how do you make your store an enticing environment in an era where football probably won't be as much and social distancing will be important and people wearing masks might become common. So I think those people who are thinking about how to do that and absolutely make their customers convinced that they are safe and be able to show them they're safe will probably come out of this the quickest. And you also have a lot of stores in China. How have you adapted that and how's that been doing? It may be because Chinese consumers are more comfortable with masks anyway, but actually the, the, the beer stores in China have all come back on stream and are doing quite well and footfall is pretty good. And so it may be because Chinese and Southeast Asian consumers are culturally more used to masks that they are much less put off by them. And so that's why I think that Western retailers are going to have to think a bit harder about getting people in the stores and making them feel comfortable and not intimidated because it's not a culture that we're used to. Anymore. But it, it really has not been a hindrance in Asia. Yeah, I think we're getting used to it quickly, uh, unfortunately. I guess anyone who commutes on public transport like I do, and I know you do, Rob, you're just going to have yeah. to get it. So. so you have a couple of cool projects that have come up every now and then. There's Tracer, which traces diamonds through the pipeline. There's this idea of reducing your carbon footprint by using Timberlight. Do you want to update us on that? Yeah, so we, you know, both of those are very much part of the way we look at the future at the beers, which is on the carbon neutral point, of course, uh, consumers rightly are expecting their products, particularly luxury products, to be as carbon neutral as possible. 
Tracer is, as you know, a very exciting blockchain for the diamond industry, although it's much more than a blockchain. It's an entire artificial intelligence system that lives effectively on a blockchain. It's still making tremendously good progress. And so we've really been focused on in the last little while on the platform development because there's not a great deal of rough in the market now. But we've enhanced the platform from when I last spoke. We've now released our enhanced application program interface, which has made it even simpler for participants to put their rough on the Tracer platform. We got to the point where by mid-year, about 50% of all the beer's production by value will be on Tracer. And that's tremendously powerful because you'll be able, from a traceability point of view, to point with absolute certainty to a consumer that I can tell you where the diamond came from, what country it came from, and, and its provenance. But it's, of course, much more than that. There's a whole data analytics platform that's already being built on top of it, and participants can now benefit from unprecedented analytics on their goods, and that's very helpful. We've got already 30 industry participants on the platform, and we've got a lot of interest from the luxury world on it. We've actually got a lot of interest from non-diamond players now about whether we can extend Tracer or they can use a variance of Tracer for non-diamond traceability. So it really has become an industry-leading blockchain. And in fact, it was voted by Forbes, one of the 50 leading blockchains in the world last year, which was tremendously pleasing for us. On the carbon neutral point, I think we are we are very, very focused at the beers on sustainability and on traceability. So part of sustainability is showing consumers, of course, that our minds are as gentle as possible on the environment and that we use as little carbon as possible. So we're working very hard on a number of projects to get to carbon neutrality, one of which is the one you've spoken about, which is a really exciting project looking at the natural carbon capture qualities of kimberlite, which is the host rock in which diamonds are found. We're now trialing the next phase of the trials at a couple of mines in the De Beers group, and we've had some donations from various NGOs that support helping climate change to help us do this. So we're into the next phase. We should have results in a few months, and I'll fill you in on those when we get to them. But it's just part of the plan to do whatever we can to bring our carbon footprint down as close to zero as soon as we can. Wow, great. In terms of coming out of this, you know, what do you think you're going to be doing differently, both personally and professionally? You know, we have been thinking a lot in the last couple of years about the future and how we can get to the future quicker. And I think this probably will accelerate this. I, I mean, I, I wonder whether people thought six months ago you could function pretty well for 50 days in a row not coming into your office. And so I, I'm sure that people will still go to an office, but I'm sure that we will have arrangements where people go to offices less and they then have a little bit more time to spend at home and maybe commute a bit less. And think about how much time you can save if you don't commute it has a benefit for the environment too so i think from that point of view i would expect to see change uh, i mean i'm no aviation expert but i wonder if people will travel as much when things get back to normal operating minds i think we're going to have to be better at operating them remotely better at operating them using data analytics and i think all of this will accelerate that and i do think the online trend will continue and i think as ever with online there'll be winners and losers but those who do this well and have a proper integrated omni-channel system with augmented reality and using technology the way I suppose you can now, I think they should have a rosy future. Any final thoughts for the industry or anything that you think is very important as we go through this crisis, especially as far as what the beers is doing? Yeah, I think you know we are going through a difficult time and it's difficult for every single person in the industry. And I'm very conscious of that. But we are here, we're not going away. I'm sure the beers will come out of this crisis even stronger. Thank you for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Katie Clifford, co-producer alongside Kathy Passero. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. 
We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.